0: I'm hearing the clock ticking a little louder than it I've ever noticed it before because in two weeks my firstborn moves out of state to go to college, and I know what happened. I'm so young. How did that… Uh, how did that ever occur? If you've met my firstborn, and I'm only talking about him because he's not in here, it'll be a radically different sermon in the second uh, in the second worship service. Uh, He got big on me, he got big and he got strong, and he's always been determined, but now he's got muscles to go along with the determination. So my personal stance toward him has moved from one of force to diplomacy. I used to negotiate like the United States, and now I negotiate like Belgium. I make suggestions, I offer ideas, I put things on the table for discussion, it changes, it goes quickly. Ten years ago, when I, when I returned with my family from Mexico to become joyfully, happily, gratefully your senior pastor, a hardworking friend pulled me aside and said, listen, I know you're excited to be here, but make sure you take time to go to your kids' games and enjoy their lives because they'll be out from under your roof very, very soon. And I thought, the demented ramblings of an old man, I mean, right? My kids are little, I'm a young man myself, and now, apparently, in just about, you know, what seems like I turned around, and now he's, it's it's happening, it's real. Uh, He's answering grown men's emails, telling them, yes, sir, I will be there, and what do I bring, and dad, where are the documents, and asking about things like insurance, grown man kind of stuff. And I've got two weeks. And that's why I hear the clock ticking. Because what I've been asking myself for two or three months now as his senior year started drawing to a close is, what have I missed saying and what do I need to say again before he launches out? It's a huge question. Because I know a few things that are life-saving and life-changing for him, and we've tried to tell him those things. All of his life, we were praying for him and about him when he was still in the womb. But now, I've got two weeks. What should I say? What does he need to hear? What will make a difference? When he's tempted, when things come crashing into his life, what do I want? What words from my heart to his do I want echoing in his life to keep him safe? Second Timothy in the Bible is a letter like that. From reading all that we know about Paul and all the Bible tells us about this circumstance, Paul was in a cold prison cell. He was shackled. And he wasn't shackled to a wall, apparently. Apparently, he was shackled to a soldier. He was not alone. He knew that this time he would not escape. He knew that execution awaited him. Paul, through the incredible providence of God, combined with sometimes God using Paul's amazing intelligence and wisdom, has escaped many things. He's been left for dead before, but this time he knows he's not going home. When he leaves this cell, Paul knows that he will face the executioner, and that's exactly what happened. And he has time and resources to write a final letter that we find in Scripture. He may have written more, we don't know, but we know for sure this is Paul's final letter, and these are quite literally his written dying words to a man who spiritually he considered a son. Paul didn't have, he says, anyone like Timothy, anyone who was so concerned for the spiritual welfare of others. Other people looked to their own affairs and to their own concerns. Timothy had the heart of a pastor who was always reaching out in love toward other believers. And Paul had left him in some very difficult ministry circumstances, and he writes him two letters. And from what Paul told him, we can gather that Timothy would have been in a circumstance where between the church and the troubles it was facing and his own temperament, he would have been easily made afraid. He would have been tempted to back down. He would have been tempted to let go. So in his second letter, Paul, a dying Paul, a condemned Paul, writes and tells Timothy, here's what I need you to remember as I prepare for the end. You can pick the reading up with me in Second Timothy, please. And I'm in the second chapter to share with you a single idea from one verse, Second Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, So flee youthful passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Let's read that together, shall we? You can read it off your outline or off the screen if you prefer. Paul wrote to Timothy and to believers everywhere through the help, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these words to us. He said, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There are three verbs here, and I want you to pay attention to them as we go. Uh, Three concepts, rather. Read that again with me once more. It says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Good wisdom. Good dying words. Why are they here? Is this so personal that there's no profit for us? Absolutely not. Paul wrote Timothy earlier that Everything, he had taught Timothy earlier and he reminds him in his letters that everything that God wrote down, every scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable to rebuke us and to correct us, to make us right, and to train us for righteousness so that the person who is exposed to God's Word will be prepared for every kind of good work. These, then, are Paul's attempts under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in writing for Christians everywhere, including all these years later, to tell us the fundamentals of the Christian life. See, what I've been trying to do with Ryan in the last several months as I really started paying attention to the clock and got out of that thing called denial. This really is happening. He really is leaving. He's not sticking around. He's going away. I've tried very hard not to say anything new. I've tried to go back to the basics. The fundamentals really are the key to life. You never outgrow the fundamentals. If you've ever met anyone who's really, really good at their chosen thing, you've met someone who is a master at the fundamentals. They never leave them. This simple verse with two plain instructions to run for it tell Timothy what what will make his life useful, what will keep him safe, what will make him to continue to be a blessing to other people. First he says, flee youthful passions. It's Paul telling Timothy. He's telling him to run from something. Flee youthful passions. And I spent a lot of time this week thinking about what youthful passions are. I know sometimes you very much prefer this to be a monologue, but think with me for just a second. If you've known young people and you know the passions that are characteristic to youth, what sorts of passions govern the lives of the young? What sorts of passions call out to them and threaten to pull them off the path? Pleasure. Pleasure. Sex certainly would be a temptation for a young man in a pagan city. But there's more than that money. Paul cautions Timothy in his letters to be very careful regarding the love of money, which he says is the root of every kind of evil. In context, we don't have to reduce this simple instruction to run from youthful passions to sexual pleasure. Certainly that would be a danger to Timothy. That's why Paul told Timothy to regard the young women in the church as his own sisters. If every person who taught the Bible publicly would take that simple instruction, you would never hear of another preacher caught in a scandal again. If he would genuinely regard the young women in his church as his sisters in Christ, he would be safe. But there's more to it than that. If you'll look at it with me in context, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 1 Paul tells Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Verse one, for those of you who are further along following Jesus, I commend verse one to your meditation for you to think about how Paul puts two concepts together. He said, Be strong in grace. You see, there's a ditch on either side of the road following Jesus where you think it is entirely grace and you can rest and coast and don't have to give any conscious effort to anything, or you can fall in the ditch on the other side where you say, it's all about me being strong and me doing this in my own strength. Paul combined those two concepts to the truth, to explain the truth, and he said, be strong in the grace of Christ. Timothy is tempted, I believe, in context to let go of some things. He said in verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We're studying the Bible a little bit this morning. Think with me through verse 2, how many generations of people hearing the good news of Jesus are represented in verse 2? Three is one answer, that was my first answer, let's think about it a little bit Let's look at it again and see if there's another one. The things you have heard from me, that's Paul. Who heard them? Timothy. Who is he going to give them to? Other faithful men who will be able to do what? Teach others also. Four links. Here's my point. Paul isn't being novel. He is saying to Timothy, 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 you know the truth, hold on to it. The grace of Jesus is sufficient for you. Be strong in it. Stand fast, Timothy, do not let go. Look with me further down, closer to our passage. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. I'm showing you the context because I think in addition to the obvious and immediate thought of sexual temptation… This letting go on the one hand and being argumentative and hot-headed and entering into controversy, those are characteristic temptations of youth. It's what Pastor Jim, our current youth pastor, calls a self-styled faith, where you have a desire to be novel. I'll never forget a heartbreaking conversation I had with a young man in his 20s who was considering leaving his church. And when I asked him why, because he was loved there, he had ministry there, he was growing in the grace of Jesus there. When we got down to the why, he said this, I want to leave because I agree with everything they say. Now think about that for a second. What was he saying? I want to hear something new. That is a passion, that is a temptation characteristic to youth. I'm tired of what I was taught. I desire to hear something new. Parents, for your children who, like mine, are going to college, understand that I've made a personal little covenant between God and myself to pray for your kids as I pray for my own. Because when they go to college, they will be swamped in novelty. And college professors, it happened to me, I had a Marxist, atheist professor try to take my faith away and tell me so and gave me one last shot, gave me as a gift a book when, with a dedication pleading me to come to my senses when I, God, by, the grace, by God's grace, rescued me from His clutches and I told Him I was going off to seminary. Novelty is headed toward your children. One of the characteristic passions of youth is to find a new path all for themselves. This is why I'm showing you the context. Faithfully following Jesus is a matter of holding fast, of holding on to Him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no novelty with Him. Now, don't misunderstand me. One of the passions of youth, which sometimes older men and older women try to return to, and we call that a midlife crisis. I didn't have enough fun. I didn't have enough novelty. I didn't carve a new path back then. I'm going to do it now in my late 40s and 50s. Watch for that. It didn't say that these pitfalls only afflict the youth. They said they're characteristic of youth, and there's nothing worse than an old fool. A young fool is more easily excused because he was deceived, he didn't know better. These youthful passions, to have a self-styled faith, to surrender to pleasure, to let go and to make your own way apart from Jesus, Paul says that's something that you need to run from. Did you see the verse? It says, so, verse 22, it says, so, what? Flee. Run for it. And particularly for young men and for middle-aged men who are wondering what it's all about and wondering if they have the energy and the freedom to have one more last, one last great hurrah before the darkness closes in, the word flee is not particularly appealing. But you know, there are times to run. I read a study... Conducted with a lot of data and a lot of interviews in 2008 regarding the disaster of 9-11. I wasn't here in the country, so I had to learn this. I didn't realize there were 16 and a half minutes before between the planes striking the buildings. What that meant was on that terrible morning, 2,000 people in the tower that was not attacked at first had a decision to make. An enormous airliner crashed into and eventually utterly destroyed the first tower, but 2,000 people in the second tower were unharmed and they had 16 and a half minutes to decide what to do. 1,400 of them fled. But what I didn't know was there were announcements in the building saying the building is secure, there's no need to be alarmed. 600 people stayed. Amazingly, people stayed at their desks. Amazingly, people kept working. Amazingly, people looked over at their bosses and saw that their boss was untroubled, and their boss told them, This is no cause for concern. We can carry on. And 600 people, for lack of fleeing, died that day. Tim Sullivan knew better. He was an Army reservist and the fire warden for his floor. He knew enough to know that when he saw a comet of fire race by his building, he knew immediately what happened. That man didn't even stop to grab his wedding ring, which he'd taken off and left on his computer keyboard. He ran, and he lived. When Paul speaks to Timothy about sin, he always and only has one word of instruction. He says, flee. Run for it. The kids are in their own Bible studies. So for those of you who may be middle-aged and wondering whether you should cash it all in and carve an entirely new path, how the self-styled faith, have one last great party, listen to me. Run from that. It will kill you. The Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, and that's true. When sin is deadly, the time and the instruction from the Bible is to run for your life. It says in 2 Timothy 2:22, "So flee youthful passions." Most of the people who died on 9/11 in the second tower who could have escaped did so because five minutes before the plane hit, they heard an announcement saying that all was well. That was well-meaning, but it was terribly wrong. The culture is telling you that you don't need to flee sin. The culture is telling you that you can more and more become acculturated and become comfortable with the wickedness that surrounds us and the wickedness that springs up in your own heart. What Paul says to Timothy is very different. He said to Timothy, Timothy, you run for it. You flee youthful passions. But that's not all he said Keep reading with me. It says, so flee youthful passions and what? And pursue. A second verb and more running, if you'll notice. You see, it's not enough to run from. You also have to be running toward something. You have to have a goal. And I think that's why Paul told Timothy in very plain, practical terms what a Christian life in leadership and service to others looked like. I think that's why he told him to stand fast and to be strong in the grace of Jesus. One of the great, great lies given to us in contemporary Christianity in the United States is almost exclusively an American idea. Is that you can pray a prayer and Jesus will save your sins forever, save you from your sins forever, and after that you can largely relax and live your life. That's not what's at the heart of this verse. Flee from youthful passions and what? Pursue. You know what it means to pursue? Chase after. You have a clear direction. There's something that you want. There's something that you're trying to apprehend. There's a goal that you're chasing. It makes all the difference in the world to have a goal. What are we to be pursuing as believers? Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. May I suggest to you that there's a lifetime of adventure and learning and growing and trusting in that little character portrait. Righteousness, faith, love, peace. You'll never get bored pursuing those things. Pursuing righteousness and love, I mean, if I could be very practical without prying too much, are you perfectly satisfied with the way you loved other people this week? Do you look back across this week and say, I have loved everyone that Jesus brought into my path. I love them as Jesus would in my place. Can you say that? I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. I'm just asking a follow-up question on clear instructions that you and I were both given from the Bible. We were told to pursue righteousness and love. Righteousness is a little bit of a hard concept to get our hands on, so let's start with Love. God brought people into your path this week, yes? You're a very uncooperative crowd this morning. I'm not sure where I've gone wrong, but generally you're a little more engaged and helpful than this. And God had love in His heart and mind toward those people He made, right? Brought you into contact with them just because of random chance, because we live in a randomly ordered universe and things just happen, right? No, God's purposeful. He knows everything from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. So He put you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are set aside for God, you're in God's family, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you have gifts from the Holy Spirit, as we said last week, with which to serve others, and God brought people into your life now. In your interactions with them, are you perfectly satisfied that you love them as Jesus would if He would have been present instead of you? Me neither. That's why this is a lifetime of pursuit. Paul wrote in another place that he didn't think that he had apprehended this goal, but he did one thing. He forgot what was behind him, and he continued extending himself for what lay ahead. Don't let go, keep running. Paul said, run from sin, run from these youthful passions that destroy lives, and run toward the righteousness, the faith, the love, and the peace of God. Those words are a description of Jesus. What God is working on, what He has told you to pursue, is to be Christ-like, to be mature in Christ so that you're in your behavior when it comes to your righteousness your faith, your love, and your peace, you remind the people of Jesus, and you think and feel and act as Jesus would in that situation that you find yourself in. See, when people, and especially when a local church, when an organized body of believers takes that seriously, and you now have dozens or hundreds or sometimes in some churches, thousands of people all of whom remind people of Jesus in their righteousness, in their love, in their faith, and their peace, that has an extraordinary effect around the world, wherever those people go. That's why they were called Christians in the first place. Christians initially was kind of an insulting term, as if to say, ah, oh, these are the little Christ's. Why did they call them that? Because they so clearly reminded people with their every decision, words, and actions and the way they loved others and the way they treated each other that they belonged to Christ. That's what we're running toward. Listen, if you'll set the goal out ahead of you and you'll go beyond the good habit but go beyond a good habit of simply going to church on Sunday and reading your Bible when you need a little bit of a pick-me-up, If you'll understand that Jesus is ahead of you with heaven wide open in a place He is preparing for you, but while He has you on earth, what He wants you to do is run toward His righteousness, faith, love, and peace, it will be absolutely life-changing. You don't need a self-styled faith. You don't need to be creative and novel in your life because, believe me, there is adventure enough in pursuing Christ. If you get serious and say to Jesus, whatever it takes, whatever you say, and I know for sure it's you, I will do it. I'll change the way you want me to change. I'll stay where you want me to stay. I'll do and choose and act and love and feel as best I can when I hear you. I'll do whatever you say. You'll have the most spectacular adventure with God that anybody ever could. He's not a boring Savior. Did you know that? I think one of the things that afflicts Christian churches, if I could step back and just be a little bit philosophical with you and just talk to you from a pastor's point of view, is we're bored with our faith. Just the same old thing for too many people, it's an open question whether they're going to go to church on Sunday morning. It kind of depends on how they feel. You know what that tells me? You're not pursuing anything. If that describes you, and I have no idea, and I'm not aiming at anybody, hopefully if you've been here before, you don't know I don't don't get upset with one person and talk to them by way of talking to several hundred. That's not what this is about. I'm telling you to take this passage seriously. You are to run, run from sin and run toward Christ. That is a lifetime of enjoyment. It is a lifetime of effort. It is a lifetime of surprising blessings and grace and joy and sacrifice too in every bit of it. And if you do that, Paul says in this context, you can choose your usefulness to God. Did you know that? Look in the verses just above, Second Timothy chapter 2. And I'll read from verse 20. Paul said, now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Now, what's he talking about? We have to step back into the first century to get the picture, but it's the same in our houses today in 2015. Paul said, in a big house, there's all kinds of different instruments and tools and dishes and furniture. Some of them are made from precious materials, and those are used for honorable uses. That's like your fine china that you pull out once every 10 years. For some reason, we decided to register some really, really, really nice plates when we first got married. We've used them maybe three times. But there they are. For special occasions, there they are. Paul said in that same house, there's also very much more Uh, much more common dishes, those things, he said, verse 21, are made out of wood and clay. Those are made for dishonorable uses. What kind of dishonorable use would you expect a clay dish to be used for in a first-century house? Somebody's got to take the trash out, right? Now, look, here's the application point, and here's why Timothy is told to run from sin and run toward righteousness. Therefore, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, get it? If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart." What's Paul telling Timothy? What's he telling us? Timothy, keep your life clean so that God can use you for the best possible uses. God will use everyone, but some of us he will use for dishonorable purposes because we refuse to keep our lives clean. As a good friend of mine says, some of us serve as examples, others of us serve as warnings. If I could be practical with you. In God's house, I'd rather be a plate than a trash can. I've been both, and the difference has made whether I was running from the difference has been whether I was running from sin or not. I've had conversations with my son where I have cautioned him against the foolishness that once characterized the life of his father. I don't want my boy to ever think that because God forgave me, it was a good idea, and I would do it again, and it was worth it. It was not. Sin was never worth it. That's why Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you have a wide-open invitation here. If you'll run away from sin and you'll run toward righteousness, faith, and love, and peace, you can be completely useful to God, and He will use your life for honorable purpose, for the blessing of others for all kinds of good. And parents, please hear me saying, if the shackles of sin have been on your family for generations, you can break them now for your kids by showing them a different way, by making sure that their lives are cleaner, more useful, more honorable than yours have been. And Paul says at the end, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What's Paul saying here? Don't just run from sin and run toward righteousness. Make sure that you run with like-minded people. Do this running, make this pursuit, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's why our fellowship matters so much, That's why our kids came back from Hume Lake Christian Camp, spiritually transformed. They were with like-minded people for a week. Everybody who was up there wanted to be up there, and almost everybody who went on the trip expected and wanted to hear from God. That's why it makes such a difference. There's over a hundred kids just from our own group that are paying attention who all came for the same thing. What's happening there? They're running along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, and it makes a huge difference to be with like-minded people. You see, on 9-11, another thing that the study revealed is that people lived or died in groups. Most of the bosses and most of the people in that second tower without knowing what was wrong, knew that something disastrous was happening, and told everyone right down to the lowest employee, let's get out. In the five minutes between the last announcement that all was well and the destruction that the second plane caused, the express elevator could have made two trips, saving hundreds of people. People lived and died in groups. People in those towers looked to their boss and if he stayed at his desk, they stayed at their desk. It's a tough thing, especially in that business environment, to leave when the boss is still working. Boardrooms, conference tables, cubicles. People stood up, looked around, what's everybody doing? In some cases, the bosses said, don't know what's happening, let's go home. And they lived. Others spoke false words of calm, not knowing any better. They spoke words of peace and productivity on that terrible September morning. And the people who listened to that bad advice, it wasn't wasn't evil, it wasn't ill-intended, but it was fatal. They lived and they died because of peer pressure, because of what the group was doing. Paul is saying, Timothy, you're leading these people, but listen, you need to surround yourselves with people, and you need to run with people who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's why one of the constant pleas I'll make to you, even to you introverts, who don't like small groups, who walk around with invisible T-shirts that say, I'm here, I'm uncomfortable, and I want to go home, okay? I'm not an introvert, but I understand, the, I understand the thinking. You don't have to know everybody. You don't have to talk to everybody. But you need a few like-minded people who are running with you toward Christ. Just a few. That's why our continual plea is for you to come and run with us toward Jesus. Run with us toward life. You see, this verse really is all about running. And what Paul is telling Timothy here is to live a godly and a useful life, church, we have to run for it. Sin is ever calling out for us the passions of youth that would destroy a life at any age, not just when you're young. will continually call out to you to have a self-styled faith, to choose your own path, to trade pleasure for eternal significance, and to suffer for it. We're told instead to run toward Jesus, his righteousness, his love, his faith, his peace, and running the company of people who will keep us on track and encourage us as we run. I pray that you will. There's no Sunday I love more than the one we're going to have next week. Next week you're going to get a glimpse into what God did at Hume Lake. You're going to hear from kids' own mouths what a difference God made. And my encouragement to you, especially in this first service where relatively few students are present because they're all in their own Bible studies, let's run together with them. If you're middle-aged or you're in the the second half of your life, this verse still speaks to you. Guard yourself in your old age if that's the season you find yourself in and understand that Jesus still beckons toward you beckons you to run toward Him in the company of others who will likewise make themselves useful to God. Let's pray together right now. Could you honestly say that you're running towards something? See, pursuit is the opposite of going through the motions. Pursuit implies a goal. Goal. You're running toward something. That's our continual challenge. That is the continual adventure of hearing the voice of Jesus calling us to be like Him, to be changed into His likeness and to represent Him well on earth. What does it look like to run from evil, run toward righteousness, it looks like Jesus. That's what we're being called to, likeness. And Paul says when you do that, you'll choose your youthfulness, your usefulness to God. You will be free and clear to give God good, honorable service, to bless the lives of others. Maybe you feel like you're not ready for that. Listen, you can be. This is what Jesus does. This is His work to change people into His likeness. To move them, as we've been saying, around the family table from the baby chair to the parent chair so that you will have a life when you look at it at the end and the clock ticks loudly for you at the end of your life, that you will see that it has been well lived and well worth it and it's changed eternity. So, I just want to give you a minute to yourself and to the Lord to identify things that have been bogging you down and, and pulling you back to think about what pursuit of righteousness looks like in your specific case. And maybe if you need to, to ask God to give you a few people to run with. Lord, you know and love every person in this room, every person in this church that will be present in the second service and many who are away. Help us, Lord, to fear and to hate sin for the destruction that it causes to run instead, Lord, toward your righteousness, love, faith, and peace that we may be useful. And God, for that middle-aged man or woman who's thinking of going off on the self-styled path, for those in an older age, Lord, who are thinking that they've served long enough and they're tired and they want to let go, For young people who think that following you will be a mistake and they'll miss a lot of life, help every one of us in every season and every one of those temptations to run from sin and to run towards you together. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 1030 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crossplane, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when